This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome to Your Radio Doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. In recent weeks, we learned that obesity, which is growing at an alarming rate here in the U.S., can increase risk for over 200 other diseases. We've talked about fatty liver, and in some cases, obesity can lead to diabetes. Here to update us on diabetes, the different types, and current therapies is Dr. Marie McDonnell, an associate professor of medicine from Harvard Medical School. She's also the chief of the diabetes section in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Hypertension at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and the director of the diabetes program at Brigham Health. Her clinical research looks at health outcomes of delivery services of diabetes care in the acute and ambulatory settings. She served on national committees and she's the current chair of the Endocrine Society's Clinical Practice Guidelines Committee. Her recent major interest is bridging care gaps for patients with cancer and diabetes. Marie, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here, Marianne. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm really excited to share with our listeners that Dr. McDonald is here with us today and will be returning again in two weeks, which I think is November 7th. So we look forward to that. And what we don't finish today, we will carry on uh, in two weeks. But I think it's good for so many listeners, so many lay people, and even some physicians repeat words and never really stop and think, what does this mean? What exactly is diabetes and how does that cause damage to our vital organs? Yeah, you know, Marion, what a simple question because diabetes is so commonly discussed in, on everywhere. And, and I think people do need to think about, you know, what actually is it? So basically, there's lots of types of diabetes, but they're all similar in one point, which is the blood sugar is too high for normal processing. So your body is supposed to use sugar. That's our number one fuel. Most of the food we eat gets converted to sugar. But when there's too much of it, it's something our body's not designed to handle. It's sort of like, you know, flooding the engine, you know, if you're thinking about your car. So so the story is that when the blood sugar is chronically too high, many systems in your body stop working efficiently. Some, some body systems make kind of 
abnormal byproducts and they act as toxins or poisons uh, to things like the nerves or little blood vessels like behind your eyes. So there are some organs that are more sensitive to this problem. Uh, and we could talk more about that. But that, that's the big the big picture is too high blood sugar for too long is, is like a poison. Mm -hmm. And when I review uh, cases of diabetes with our residents or even our fellows, we always talk about that chemical reaction or that toxicity you described because elevated sugars and fats cause this stressful reaction that leads to inflammation. That seems to be the, the, set, mm -hmm. the focus of so many diseases, cancers and um, fatty liver and such, but that inflammation damages major blood vessels that increase risk for stroke, heart attack, even amputation, right? But it's the mm -hmm. tiny, tiny blood vessels that are right. specific to diabetes, that these tiny blood vessels get blocked either by high lipids, right? Or this inflammatory reaction, you lose your vision, can have kidney disease, and then our nerves get blood supply. So the tiny blood vessels that feed the nerves, that's why they lose sensation in, in their feet. Am I right about that? Yep, you, you got it. And actually, the nerves themselves, they have this special way to utilize fuel, because actually the brain doesn't doesn't need insulin, for example, to help uh, transport sugar, neither, neither do any of the nerves. So they're sort of exposed to the high sugar more than other tissues. And, and they themselves, they actually kind of produce a, a toxin um, because they don't really know what to do with the extra fuel. And you're right, it's basically... Uh, a neuritis, which is another, itis is always something you end up, you put at the end of a organ to mean inflammation, like you're saying, Marianne. So it's like a neuritis um, and nerves get damaged over many years. And, and the worst case scenario is, is probably nerves that are damaged so much that the tissues start to lose um, ability to protect themselves, feet, the feet, for example. Um, and that, in, in, in combination with tiny blood vessels also getting damaged, people are the most afraid in my practice of uh, amputations. Oh, sure. I can't even imagine. Yeah. And then add smoking, which is a different type of inflammatory reaction. You're inhaling uh, chemicals that cause inflammatory reactions in blood vessels. So diabetics, cigarettes are... Um, absolutely at the top of the list to not be part of their lifestyle as well as alcohol we can talk about the alcohol effect later but there are two types of diabetes and they used to be called adult and um pediatric juvenile so tell us tell us what they're called now and, and how they differ if you would yeah, that's great because we, we try to stick with the type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and then atypical diabetes. And you can even throw in monogenic, which is one gene that gets mutated. It's very it's, it's uncommon. But if we stick with the two basic categories, we recognize now that anybody at any age can develop either one. And that's so important. And it's something we learned really in the past, um, I would say, 20 years. So type 1, easy to remember, one problem. The, the body does not make insulin anymore to any any really appreciable degree. It's an autoimmune disease in its classic form. And um, and in and, and type 2, there's two problems. It's not only does the body not make quite enough insulin, it also isn't utilizing the insulin properly at the, all those tissues, muscle and fat and, and the liver. Um, and, the, and as a result, in both cases, the blood sugar is too mm -hmm. high. And you treat them differently, right? I mean, with a type 1, which, as you say, classically, we used to think of it as juvenile or children. But 
I, I have patients who were diagnosed with it in their 30s, right? So absolutely. So you're going to go yep. probably right to insulin for somebody who has no insulin. Yep, that's right. How about type two? How do you approach that? Yep. Type type two, we try to help those organs work uh, with your own body's insulin as much as possible. So there's there's at least eight different classes that we use in, in to treat, classes of medicines that we use to treat diabetes. Uh, we really focus on uh, four or five, maybe. Um, but the bottom line is there are a lot of different avenues you can go down to control the blood sugar in type two. So mm -hmm. it, insulin comes in later. We try to wait as long as possible, not because insulin's bad for you, but it complicates your life and it doesn't get to the heart of the matter. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that you always stress, uh, I've heard you before, that it's not just the medication and, and watching your intake, it's lifestyle intervention with exercise. Because we know, I, I want to do a whole show on the benefits of exercise in itself. It's not necessarily weight loss, mm -hmm. it's the physiology, the good physiologic response to exercise that you can get better sugar control even if you don't lose weight. Am I right about that? Yes, and, and we know actually some research done right here in Boston that showed that you know, you, your body knows how to take up more sugar when you exercise, it take up more sugar into the muscle. So you end up clearing the sugar mm -hmm, from the mm -hmm. blood. It, it's a great, it's a great, uh, acti you know, thing to part of your treatment. It's an important part of your treatment. And would you say, uh, somebody who has type one diabetes, that's probably gallops a little more quickly than type two, that they should definitely follow with an endocrine specialist. Most of the time type two can be followed by primary care. Yes, I think that's that's a fair thing. And and one thing in the U.S., we don't have enough endocrinologists. This is a global problem. So if we can get at least all of our type 1s under the care of a specialist, we'll be really winning the game. But that's even challenging in many parts of the world. And for type 2s, when things get really complicated and we have end organ damage, um, vision loss, you know, I think those folks really deserve a specialist to help guide them to the best um, technologies and treatments. Sure. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Marie McDonald from Harvard. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. And we're back on Your Radio Doctor, talking about diabetes, the different types with Dr. Marie McDonald. Marie, tell us what are the classic symptoms? Are they the same for type one and type two? And are they always obvious? Right, uh, such a good question. So the most important thing to say here is that diabetes can be completely asymptomatic. So most people, I would say most people do not know they have diabetes and we have some data to support that. Um, I would say the second answer to your question is that we want to make sure we identify the worst case scenario symptoms, people who are losing weight, um, very, very thirsty from sugar coming out into their urine, uh, and, and hungry as well. This is, this is insulin deficiency, and it can be very serious. And sometimes it includes nausea and vomiting. Those folks need help, and they need to go to the emergency room if they've never experienced those symptoms before, um, especially if they already know they have diabetes. You got to get help. That's more likely to happen in type 1 diabetes because you're losing insulin production. That's the primary problem. But we can see that in type 2. Sometimes type 2 diabetes presents with 
a little uh, severe insulin deficiency and we can kind of support the body and get it back on track. So in any case, folks who have insulin deficiency are feeling really bad and they need help regardless of the type of diabetes they have. Mm -hmm. And in its extreme, I know uh, I have seen many cases, even a family member of ours, DKA, if people ever hear that, stands for diabetic ketoacidosis. One of the things when your sugars go out of control, it really can affect your acid base balance. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, it's it's something we have to explain to patients a lot. So hopefully I do a good job here. But bottom line is when you when your body doesn't sense glucose or sugar as a fuel, it starts to go to other sources of fuel. Everybody knows with keto diets that you can actually convince your body to make ketones, which is an alternative fuel. Uh, your body actually can use it very efficiently. It's a marker of starvation, actually. Um, but when you your body doesn't have enough insulin, and that's the reason why it's making a lot of ketones, it goes unchecked, meaning the ketone level goes so high. And if it's high enough, actually ketones are very, uh, they're actually weak acids that when there's enough of it in the blood, they cause what's called acidosis. And we're, you know, we're designed to maintain a normal pH balance, a very tight pH balance in our blood. So when we have too much acid in our blood, it, it shuts down a lot of organs. Um, we used to see, you know, up to 10% mortality with DKA. Now, globally, it's less than 1%. In the US, it's less than 0.1%. So we know how to treat people. We just need them to get to the hospital on and, time. And so we talk about it so they recognize it. And if so, one of the things would be ketotic, you know, when you've uh, been fasting too long and you get the bad breath that's ketones that you're exhaling right so mm -hmm. that's why it, mm -hmm. that's one of the things if you notice that about yourself um that means go right to the emergency room yes 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 and 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 most patients it's nausea and vomiting and sometimes abdominal pain uh, but yes a bad taste in the mouth is common uh, and we often get stories from folks that they were drinking juice and Coca-Cola and things that are making it worse, but they don't, you know, it, it, they're craving sugar. That's also part of um, ketoacidosis. Sure. So looking at diabetes, one of the screening tests that people talk about and say, oh, I have to get my hemoglobin A1C or their A1C level. Again, I don't think... A lot of people really understand exactly what that is, um, but we use it to screen for diabetes and pre-diabetes and pre-diabetes, good Lord, so much damage <laughs> starts there. You can tell us a lot more about that mm -hmm. than I, but I always try to tell my patients, don't think because you're hovering at just a decimal point above the normal level that you get a pass because that's when the vascular disease begins. So how do you make the diagnosis what is hemoglobin A1C and how does that help us? Right, right, right. So your blood sugar changes all throughout the day. So the practicality of making a diagnosis of clear high blood sugar in an individual, it, it, it's, it's hard because somebody could really eat you know, eat very little one day, go to the doctor and their blood sugar looks good. But on an alternative day, their blood sugar is too high. So the, the way around that is to try to get an average blood sugar. And it was discovered really, I think it was now like 40 years ago, um, that our hemoglobin um, and many other proteins in our body, but 
uh, their the blood sugar attaches onto certain proteins and uh, it's called glycosylation. And we can utilize the lifespan of the red blood cell, which is a, like 60 to 90 days, a little bit longer, but we can utilize that to decide, to, to develop a test to say, okay, how much glycosylation on that hemoglobin mo uh, molecule in the red blood cell will tell me on average what the blood sugar is for the, has been for the last 60 to 90 days. So it's, I tell my patients it's a percent and it's kind of like the percent of blood that has sugar in it and it should not be higher than 6.5. That is the threshold for diabetes. It really shouldn't be higher than 5.7%, which is the threshold for pre-diabetes. And you brought that up, Marianne. The, the, the thing about pre-diabetes, if somebody lived with a pre-diabetes range A1C of 5.8% for their whole life, they are very unlikely to have any problem related to diabetes. But what we know is that most of the time, diabetes is progressive. So if we can figure out those folks in the pre-diabetes range, we can basically identify those who are going to be in the diabetes range in the next five years and just teach them what to do. You know, they need to exercise, need to change the diet, stop the soda, stop even the juice. I hate to say it, but juice isn't necessarily good for you. Fruit's good for no, you. No, you're so right. <laughs> and But you know what? So now we use that in an annual physical, and it's a luxury if you find that out, is what you're saying. You have a chance to avoid some of the long-term side effects of type 1 and type 2. Let's talk about some of those long-term side effects. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you're right. It is a gift. It's a gift to know if you have prediabetes for sure. So the long-term effects. So it can take 10 to 20 years to develop any of these. Again, your body knows what to do with sugar, but if it's too high for too long, it just suffers over time. So large blood vessels, let's start there. Um, we talked about the little ones, but the large ones also get impacted because high blood sugar can promote stickiness of the blood vessels, the endothelium inside the blood vessels, and allows for fat sort of to create these blockages, um, makes the vessels not work properly and also allow them to develop plaques. Or, and, and that's the cause of strokes and heart disease. Now, small vessel disease um, is important, is very critical, and, and the most bothersome or concerning would be the retinopathy. So small vessels behind the eye and what's called the basement membrane gets glycosylated, as we talked about. It's like it sort of gets gummed up back there, and um, people can go blind if they don't see the eye doctor. Uh, the other blood vessels that nourish the nerves, um, uh, those are similarly affected and people have neuropathy. They, they tend to start with numbness and tingling. Over time, they usually develop the pain side of neuropathy, uh, which is devastating and, and yeah. it is preventable. I mean, it mm -hmm. really is preventable. Uh, and then lastly, the kidney we follow closely over time. Everybody's kidney function declines with age, but in diabetes, it's accelerated. So that can have mm -hmm. an impact. And as a GI doctor, I see so much fatty liver and we had a show about fatty liver two weeks ago and uh, our guest dr dina halegua demarzio from jefferson calls it diabetes of the liver yeah. uh, it just really eats the liver alive and the other thing that we see a lot as gi docs is gastroparesis so i always tell my patients paralysis means no motor no strength 
paresis means, or Yosemite has hemiparesis. It means there's some activity, but it's not 100%. So if your stomach doesn't empty well and you put a meal in there, first of all, it feels like you've swallowed an anchor. But if you've taken your insulin and then you put the meal in and the food doesn't move forward, you're going to have your sugars drop and hypoglycemic episodes mm-hmm. and all kinds of problems. Tell us about that if you will. We have mm-hmm. about 30 seconds. We'll continue in the next uh, sure. segment. Sure. Yeah, gastroparesis also feels really bad when the food is not moving forward. And the one thing I'll say about that is that remember that there are nerves all over your body. Some of the nerves, all they do is is run the automated systems like, you know, the stomach and the heart. Those can be affected too in diabetes. So big problem. We call that autonomic neuropathy. Stay with us and we'll be right back with Dr. Marie McDonald from Brigham and Women's Hospital. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. And we're here on Your Radio Doctor, learning lots of great information about diabetes, the different types and manifestations. Let's talk a little, Marie, if we could, about hypo or under lower levels of sugar um, in the blood, hypoglycemia, because that can cause as much or more damage than episodes of high sugars. Am I right about that? Yeah, well, sure, in the moment. I mean, we think about high blood sugar as a long-term problem. Very rarely causes a serious issue in the moment, okay? Hypoglycemia or low blood sugar can really have a, you know, it it can cause an event that could change someone's life. So an example would be a low blood sugar episode while you're driving, where your blood sugar could drop to the point where you go from being just shaky and hungry to being confused when your brain is deprived from sugar. This is the worst case scenario. We call that severe hypoglycemia or neuroglycopenia, which is a fancy word for basically your your brain doesn't have enough sugar. Um, so, you know, falls, we see falls, we see car accidents, we see um, people, unfor- you know, very rarely, uh, but we do see people not waking up. Uh, our biggest fear is our young people with type 1 diabetes taking insulin, going to a college, and drinking alcohol for the first time to excess. And we can talk a little bit about that, but that places them at significant high risk of low blood sugar. Well, that's what we said earlier, that the things we watch are diet and exercise, but smoking, forget about it. But alcohol, as you say, people want to live their lives, and young people go to college and they're all told you shouldn't drink before you're 21, but that's often not a reality. Mm-hmm. But especially for these young people, it could cost them their lives. Yes, that's right. And and so we teach our young people about the effect of alcohol. Alcohol blocks your liver's ability to make sugar. So your, your liver actually has sugar stored and it can break it down, but it also can make sugar and alcohol prevents that. And the reason why we need our liver to do that is there are times when we don't have access to food, right? So when you're sleeping, you're intoxicated, you didn't eat enough food, um, you need your liver and alcohol blocks it and it's a big risk. So we tell our people with type 2 and type 1 diabetes who take insulin to always eat when they drink. They must eat a good meal and don't drink more than two drinks in a 
in an hour or in a sitting, ideally, mm-hmm. uh, for the for most of us, uh, because it's just very risky behavior. Yeah, and I guess um, if if people learn nothing else today or don't remember anything else, that is a big one. And even those who are or say alcohol is not in the picture, if you exercise more than usual without eating a snack or reducing your insulin lo- uh, dose, it's about adjusting. It's about the balance. Or if you wait too long mm-hmm. between meals, and and then some meds too aren't beta blockers. Don't they sometimes cause a drop in sugar? Yeah, so we've learned from um, some studies and mostly from sort of like animal work, but beta blockers um, that are used for the for heart disease usually and for blood pressure, hypertension, they can blunt your body's response to low blood sugar. So if your blood sugar is already dropping, you might not feel it if you're on a beta blocker uh, because beta blockers block things like tremulousness. And one of the first signs of low blood sugar is, is a tremor. Um, so we, it's not a big deal though. I mean, when we have folks with heart disease and beta blockade as part of their treatment for protecting them, we just counsel them. And there's this thing called continuous glucose monitoring now, Marianne, that we really try to achieve. We try to get all of our patients on these devices that, that warn them if they're going to have a low blood sugar, protects them from serious events. Mm -hmm. And it's connected to their cell phones, if I'm saying it correctly, and they get a ding or a warning that, hey, you might not feel this. Because I would guess if somebody's had, especially type 1 diabetes for maybe longer than 5 to 10 years, they develop, am I right about this, hypoglycemia unawareness, and the signs Mm -hmm. can get ahead of them before they really feel it? Yes, yes. Uh, Very scary thing for a lot of patients. It causes a lot of distress when they don't know when their next low, they call it a low usually, when their next low is going to be. So yes, hypoglycemia unawareness happens with, um, it's part of autonomic neuropathy, Mm. but it can also happen to people who have a lot of lows. They kind of get less sensitive to it. So Yes, Marianne, it's it's a big deal, and we really need to counsel our patients when they tell us they don't feel their lows. So especially those who take insulin, they should always carry um, hard candies or glucose tablets or, or carry a dose of glucagon. That's the our natural chemical, but it's a medication that can either come as a shot or a nasal spray. Tell us about that if you would. That's right. It's our body's natural way to bring the blood sugar up. Uh, not all people with diabetes have adequate responses, though. So um, glucagon can now comes in a nasal spray, but you can imagine it's really designed for people who can't get themselves um, treated with sugar. They can't get to the fridge. They're too weak, mm-hmm. you know, and they don't. They're in the car, and they don't. They, you know, they don't have access to stuff. So if 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 um, a family member, or friend is is near them, and they know where their glucagon is. They can just squirt it up their nose, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's. I, I don't like to make this analogy, but people understand it when I do. It's like Narcan for low blood sugar, um, and so it it helps people just snap up. The blood sugar goes up, and they're now awake and able to um, to handle what's going on yeah. around them. So if a patient is confused. For longer than 15 minutes or they're unconscious or the sugar stays low, just call the ambulance if you're the uh, bystander. Mm -hmm. So, Marie, for an annual exam, we're going to look at um, the patient who's had diabetes, get an annual eye exam, definitely a routine foot exam, and we check their urine for albumin. What other kind of things do you say have to be done on a regular basis uh, for diabetics more than other patients? 
more than other people, sure. So, so their blood pl- pressure needs to be checked and monitored. We know that diabetes plus high blood pressure increases the risk, uh, probably three to fourfold of other people for heart disease and stroke. So, controlling the blood pressure is important. Um, the lipid levels, uh, it, this is especially the bad cholesterol, which is called LDL, needs to be below one hundred for the for general people with diabetes. For those who already have heart disease, we even ask for even lower LDL LDL levels. So we got to watch that every year. Um, And then, you know, other things we want to make sure folks are paying attention to their skin and their understanding that that they need to get help if they do have a wound because wound healing can be slow. uh, but those are those are basically it. You know, that's one thing during te- the telemedicine phase of COVID nineteen, which we're still in. We we worried about missing the opportunity to see our patients because we know they don't always feel their the, any foot issues because they have neuropathy. They mm. don't. They might not be aware of what's going on. Um, now, one other quick thing to make sure we say is you have to go to the dentist if you have diabetes. Is it really important? Your dental health um, can decline more rapidly when you have diabetes. Mm -hmm. And you probably see a little bit more sleep apnea, uh, definitely more fatty liver. Um, Are are diabetics more likely to get fractures? I know Charcot joint, uh, which is, you can explain that better than I, but, uh, and carpal tunnel, yes. Yes, you're right. So musculoskeletal complications of diabetes sort of like a, missed a lot in, in, you know, in our reviews of diabetes, but really important. So there's this thing called Duptrin's contracture, mm-hmm. which is when, when your, your tendons in your hand, they don't, they don't extend normally anymore. So people sort of have claw hands, they might get a trigger finger. Uh, and it's hard to just carry things around. I mean, that's doesn't happen in in all patients, but it is associated with diabetes. We we do see more fractures in people with diabetes, and we're actually still trying to understand that because it's not clearly related to blood sugar control. Uh, and certainly that Charcot foot, which is a manifestation of advanced um, peripheral neuropathy, uh, when when really the 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 uh, nerves in the foot no longer really know how to maintain the shape of the foot, to mm. put it in, a, in simple terms. So the bone overgrows in some areas and um, and the foot becomes deformed. Uh, and folks need special shoes. Brutal. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Brutal, yeah. brutal sentence for someone. And then, the, of course, the risk for certain cancers has increased, like liver, pancreas, uterine, colorectal, breast, bladder, but there's also increased for risk for death. We're, I'm sounding like uh, really giving people hope, <laughs> hopeful information, but a lot of these things we can screen for. The good news is those relative risks are substantially reduced when you adjust for A1C levels of good control. So the message is try your hardest. We want to talk a little bit about therapy, but I think um, your big goal is to see what gaps there are Um, when the patient leaves the hospital, then their ambulatory care, and then your other big focus is patients who are dealing with diabetes and cancer. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that when we come back after this break with Dr. Marie McDonald. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA 1-888-RECOVERY. (laughs) 
welcome back for our final segment on diabetes with Dr. Marie McDonald from Brigham and Women's Hospital. Marie, tell us if you would a little bit about your baby, your focus. Uh, we call it precision medicine, but you want to tailor treatment to each individual case. That's a that's a tall order, but I know you do it well. Mm-hmm. Right, and actually it is sort of the approach now that we're using in managing diabetes. And this is mostly type 2 diabetes where, first of all, we want to make sure we have the diagnosis right. There are, I mentioned before, there are genetic causes that are unique enough that we have to change our our strategy for treatment. So we sometimes call those monogenic diabetes of youth, um, uh, Modi, uh, and, and we would use specific therapies for those folks. But for the type 2 patient, we're, we're pre- precision medicine comes into play when we assess what does their insulin production look like? Um, are they going to be okay if we use non-insulin medicines? Most of the time, the answer is yes. So which ones would f- suit them the best? Uh, patients with heart disease, we direct them to two specific classes of agents. Um, And then folks who have problems with uh, low blood sugar, we direct them away from certain others. Uh, And and in the end, it it tends to be about side effects and unfortunately cost, which is a big piece. Um, Happily, we really can control diabetes at a relatively low cost, um, especially when we add exercise and diet. Mm When do you say to a patient, um, you're, you're using insulin, let's switch to a pump rather than injections? Is that pretty much standard now to go right to insulin uh, pump? Yeah, what a great question, because that's part of precision medicine, mostly in type 1s, but also in advanced type mm-hmm. 2s. Uh, the data does not support the idea that pumps save the day in all patients. You know, the insulin pump is not the answer for everybody. So we um, make sure that we introduce the pump to every single patient who needs to inject insulin twice a day, at least. We should talk to them about an insulin pump. If they need to take insulin two to three to four times a day, it should definitely be a dedicated conversation just to make sure we're not missing the opportunity for them to do the best they can. Mm-hmm. This is a long road. Diabetes is not a death sentence. It really can be the patient taking control. It's up to us, Marianne, to really direct them to the right to the right therapy. Absolutely. There's so much confusion in the world. There's so many sources of information out there, and, and patients should be proactive and read on the Internet so they know what questions to ask. I mean, that's the purpose of our show. Here are the questions you should ask when you're faced with osteoporosis or diabetes, whatever the topic. Help out... Um, pancreas transplants. Can you, in our final mm-hmm. minute, or minute and a half, should we talk about that a little bit? Oh, I love it. So you, some of your viewers might have heard in the news just this week that um, Vertex is a company that um, has been able to put into clinical trials um, stem cell-derived beta cells, these cells that are basically insulin factories. And they just, for the first time, announced that they were able to transplant these cells into patients with type 1 diabetes and uh, a half dose into this one patient nearly cured the disease. Now, this is one patient, right? But this is work that I've done. It's it's basically instead of a pancreas transplant, if we can get it to work. Um, and it's and the promise is huge. You know, pancreas and kidney transplants are critical for those, especially with kidney disease and who, who need a kidney transplant. But you know what, Marion, I think we're going to see kidney and pancreas organ transplants for those with kidney disease and diabetes and, and cell therapy for everyone else. 
Gotcha. Dr. Marie McDonald, thank you so much for joining us today. Real quickly, any websites that we could uh, invite our listeners to reference if they want to read more about diabetes? Yep, you know, the American Diabetes Association at diabetes.org has revamped their patient-facing materials, and I, I think it's awesome. Lots of graphics explaining really what we just went over in simple terms, and it's still my favorite. Beautiful. Thank you once again, and we look forward to you coming back to join us on Your Radio Doctor on November 7. All right, great. Thanks, Marie. You're welcome, Marianne. Thanks. You're a real champion. I call this segment the least of my brothers. Years ago, I moved into the city for medical school. One day, I noticed a man lying on a tattered blanket near the steam from the sewer lid on a freezing cold January day. It was lunchtime on a Friday. Lots of people in a hurry. No one stopping to help him. I wondered, how did he get to that point? When did he last eat? Where can he go to the bathroom in privacy? Wasn't someone so happy on the day he was born, a beautiful new baby boy? Maybe not. Maybe no one embraced him from the start. Or maybe some tragedy or illness caused him to lose his job and home. None of us know what tomorrow has in store. Recently, I saw a posting. St. John's Hospice is hosting Boot Up Philly. $35 will buy a pair of boots, socks, and underwear for a man in need. I then shared a very uplifting call with manager Deacon Anthony Willoughby, who's worked with people experiencing homelessness for 30 years. He said, nobody wakes up and says, I want to be homeless. Our mission is dignity driven. A meal is dignity. Anyone can hand out a meal, but not everybody can genuinely pray for these men, interact with them and let them know they're loved. One day, he had a man come to the front door after defecating in his clothing. Anthony welcomed him in for a warm shower, gave him clean clothes, then made a place for him at the lunch table. Now that's dignity. Another man came to St. John's without a shirt. Anthony took the shirt off his own back and covered the new cover. Anthony radiates with joy, and he says, it's what Jesus would do. And after nine years of study, he was ordained a deacon in the Catholic Church. People of all faiths come here seeking refuge since the doors opened in 1963. Men passing on the street ask him to pray with him, and he gladly does. Of his work, Deacon Anthony says, If you find a job and love it, you never work a day in your life. He felt deep satisfaction one day when he recognized a former hospice visitor, now in his own home, working as a security guard. Anthony bought him lunch to celebrate. St. John's provides a sit-down lunch for up to 400 men each weekday using casseroles from over 40 churches. Their coffee house is a safe place to sleep from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. for some 27 chronically homeless men who avoid the shelter system, along with a warm meal, restrooms, showers. There's also case management, on-site nursing, daily showers, and a mailroom where up to 1,500 men receive mail. I went to visit Deacon Anthony along with Barry Martin, director of their Good Shepherd program a drug and alcohol-free 12-bed residence for medically fragile men in homelessness. Barry began volunteering at a shelter in his home state of Michigan in 1988 and became an activist, even sang a song he wrote in front of 89,000 people, then spoke in front of Congress. He said, we look at homelessness in a different way. It's a result of something that happened, not a result of the person. He struggled to hold back tears as he recalled attending Mass at a shrine in Mexico, sitting near a destitute man with a strong odor. 
As the two men reached the altar for communion, Barry knelt next to him and could only smell roses. At that moment, he knew that working beside the poor was his calling. Many people have aspirations to help the needy, said Barry, but you have to act. It takes prayer and the Holy Spirit to do the work. My friends, Anthony and Barry live the gospel message and see God in the face of every man who seeks their help. I was so moved by the love and devotion of these missionaries and by the look of relief and acceptance on the men waiting to come inside that I cried on the ride home. I thought of the hymn we learned as children with Jesus' words, Whatsoever you do for the least of my brothers, that you do unto me. We salute you, Deacon Anthony Willoughby, Barry Martin, and the entire blessed staff of St. John's Hospice, your real champions. Help these good people to help our brothers in need. Volunteer, donate a casserole, clothing, or your dollars. Visit stjohnshospice.org. Thanks to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and for support from Recovery Centers of America and Rothman Orthopedics. Thank you for joining us every Sunday. All of our shows are posted on yourradiodoctor.com. Follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. I'm such a millennial. Say boo to the flu. Get your flu shot. Ladies, two or three cancer screenings in one visit. Pink Plus at Jefferson, 215-503-1631. Now, while you paint your pumpkins, keep it here for the sounds of Sinatra. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a wonderful and safe week. Always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.